Well, I'm uh, first of all overwhelmed, and uh, I want to greet you uh, my way. Today is Sabbath. We usually greet each other. Shalom. Shalom. Okay. You, y'all. <laughs> but today being Sabbath. My voice carries. Can you hear me loud and clear in the far end? Can you hear me loud and clear in the far end? <laughs> Today, being Sabbath, instead of saying Shalom, which means peace, we add the word Shabbat Shalom. Can I hear that? Shabbat shalom. I love you. I'm very happy to be here again. It's my second time in Killeen, and it is maybe the fifth time that I meet with Reverend and his wife. Okay. And I had the opportunity to meet some of you, and I hope to have the opportunity and to meet some more of you, because it's about the time you should come to see the Holy Land and not hear only about it. And sometimes, as you probably know, visual memories are much deeper recorded than audio memories. I will be speaking today on a subject which is very close to our hearts and our minds. Because if you wish to know, until thousand years ago, the holiest scripture about the known Bible was about 200 years old. So meaning altogether, all the scriptures we had were 1,200 years old. And these were three. One was the Codex Aleppo, that's a place in Syria where we find a combined, compiled Bible of the Old Testament. And to this was add the New Testament. And they became, in one word, named in Greek, the book, B-I-B-L-O-S, Biblos. And there is a town with that name next to Beirut in Lebanon. The second one was the Codex Sinaiticus, which is next to the St. Catherine Monastery in the Sinai, which is now under Egypt, under Egyptian rule. And the third one was the Bible which was uncovered in Israel and was hidden, and nobody knew about it. And all the three dated to 
the 8th, 9th century AD. The Dead Sea Scrolls are a collection of 972 texts from the Hebrew Bible found, can I have the map? looking for the pointer now. You asked me if I have the pointer. Okay, if you look to the bottom of the map, you can see the Dead Sea. Up is the north. On the left side is Qumran. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in Qumran in 11 caves. They are all written in Hebrew, in Aramaic, and in Greek. And very few were written in Nabatean. The Nabataeans were a people of tribes from Iran, which was original name Persia, and Syria. And they built a famous place, which you should visit, named Petra. It's one of the wonders of the world. It's a city which was carved in a red rock. The entire city is carved. The majority of them were written on parchment, which is sheepskin, goatskin, and gazelle skin, because these animals have a split hoof, and they chew the cud. And they are pure, meaning kosher. Some of them were written in papyrus, and they date back to between 150 before the common era, before the Lord, until 7 AD, until 70 AD, which is the year of the tragic dispersion and the beginning of the diaspora for the Jewish people for the last 2,000 years until 1948, the year of the creation of the State of Israel. The Dead Sea Scrolls are traditionally divided in three groups. Group number one are the biblical resources, which are incredible, and I'm going into detail later on. And these are original texts of the Bible which prove the authenticity of the Bible, and bear in mind again, they date back to approximately 2,100 years ago. And when you will hear the number of scrolls which were found entire in fragments of the scrolls, you will be amazed. Because our problem in present time is that we have 152 texts of the Bible, 152 versions. And when you may compare between one and the other, you will always find a lot of mistakes. The second is apocryphal, which means copies of the original texts. And the third one, and most important for us, is a bridge between Judaism and Christianity of the scrolls, is the sectarian scrolls, which deal with the three dominant parties in those days, 
the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and particularly with the earliest Christians in the world, namely the E-S-S-E-N-E-S, -S -E the Essenes. The discovery is legendary. The settlement Qumran is about one kilometer on the northwest of the Dead Sea Shore. In 1947, two young Bedouins, you should know who are the Bedouins, because sometimes in Texas with your wonderful accents, you don't say Bedouins, you say, ah, Bedouins. No, they're not bad at all. <laughs> the Bedouins are Muslim by faith, Arabs by origin. They come from an area named the Peninsula of Arabia. Therefore, they are Arab by origin. The Arabs are not a faith. They are not a color. They are not a race. They are a people. So the Bedouins are Muslim by faith, Arabs by origin, nomads by way of life. They live from livestock such as goats, sheep, Buros, donkeys, and of course, one hum dromedary camels. The two brothers, excuse me, one brother with his cousin, I don't want to mix you up with names, I just want to impress you. <laughs> Mohammed Eid from the tribe Tamiriya are going down to the Judean desert to graze their flocks. Before they left from the area of Bethlehem, they paint the back of their animals to identify if, there will, if they will mix up with other herds. When they came to the area of Qumran, which is an area hallowed by many, many handmade caves, they notified, they noticed, excuse me, they missed one goat. And so clever enough, every time they came close to a cave, they bent down, they took a stone, and throw the stone into the cave. Hopefully, their goat will come out. When they reached a certain cave, which is numbered in the 11 caves, which I will detail, as they throw the stone into the cave, they received the sound of breaking pottery. But they didn't know it's breaking pottery. They were very frightened, and one said to the other, let's call the others and tell them that here in the cave are devils. And say so they call the others and they say, Shuftu u Ismau in Arabic, look and listen. And they throw another stone into the cave, they receive the same sound. After accumulating enough guts, they went into the cave. And they were overheld, they were very happy because there were seven jars intact, like manufactured yesterday. You know jars are made of clay, 
if you don't destroy them after you reinforce them and kill them, they stay forever and ever, zillions of years the same. If you break them, they are no jar anymore. They are a broken jar. <laughs> and so they accumulated guts, they went into the cave, and they were very happy. They thought they find the treasury of Alibaba and the 40 tips, <laughs> which is one of the most beautiful legends in the Arab society. They were terribly disappointed because the scrolls didn't make no impression for them, but Muhammad did was clever enough to take a piece of the scroll and stick it into his long dress, Jalaba in Arabic. They went back to Bethlehem. Muhammad did hung up his Jalaba on a pole of his tent because the Bedouins live in tents. And he used to show these scrolls, this piece of scroll, to visitors. One day he decided to go to Bethlehem and show it to an antique dealer. You won't believe it. The antique dealer said, you probably stole it from a synagogue. Watch out. The police will might be after you. And go and put it away. Yes, it's unbelievable because finally he find him a client and the first four scrolls were sold for seven great Britain, British pounds, which in those days was equivalent to 29 American dollars. These four scrolls were purchased by an Israeli professor from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem named Sukenik. And these four scrolls were stored in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in a safe because in 1948 began the war between Israel and the Arab countries. The war was over in 1949. Professor Sukenik invited a German professor named Biben Kraut, and they built little steam rooms in which they stored the scrolls to let them absorb enough moisture and open them up slowly. They uncovered, they actually bought the four most important scrolls which were uncovered at that time in cave number four. Because remember, the caves are numbered. And so, first of all, they find out they uncovered the oldest Isaiah text. And second, they purchased three scrolls which give you the full background of the Essen community. The first one is known as the community rule or the manual of discipline in which it says what you have to do to become an Essene, how should you behave while you are an Essene, and what would be the punishments if you will violate their laws. The second scroll of the Essenes in the third scroll in the line, they never accepted the way of worship of the Pharisees and Sadducees, 
And so they wrote a thanksgiving scroll. And the last one, they considered themselves sons of light, who eventually will have to fight the Pharisees and the Sadducees, whom they consider sons of darkness. And it's a war scroll named the war between the sons of light against the sons of darkness. The other four scrolls passed a lot of ways until they reached the United States. And so on June 1st, 1954, the Wall Street Journal passed an ad, uh, excuse me, published an ad in the Department of Miscellaneous for Sale. Four scrolls from the Dead Sea, important biblical manuscripts dating back to at least 200 BC are for sale. These would be an ideal gift to an educational or a religious institution. Please write to box so and so. My dear friends, this is probably something from God's world. At that time, Professor Sukenik was dead. Isani Gael Yadin, who was a general in the Israeli army and chief of staff, became a very important archaeologist. And so he got in touch from the Waldorf Astoria with Professor Mazar, and they together purchased our four scrolls for $250,000, which would be now $2.4 million. And so we had the eight scrolls in our possession. Then, of course, came the Six Days War in 1967. And meanwhile, we didn't know that Professor Ronald DeVoe, whom I met and with him, I explored part of the caves. We did know that they uncovered many, many scrolls which were stored in the Rockefeller Museum in Jerusalem until Israel unified all the new city of Jerusalem. And so Israel built a special department of the Hebrew in the National Museum named the Shrine of Day Book. And there were stored the scrolls and we continued the survey and we experimented and we explored 2,100 caves in the Judean desert and uncovered 2,300 parchments and scrolls. The caves surrounding Qumran are numbered and they are based for the fact that in these caves were fine scrolls. The other caves were used by the Essene community as dwellings. And there was a time when in four administration centers in the caves have lived approximately 40,000 members of this community, which should be considered the earliest Christian community in the world. 
Now the caves, and you can take note and please refer to the biblical quotations, but don't do that now because then it will take four hours. Cave one was uncovered in the winter of 1947. It was first excavated by Gerald Lancaster in Harding and Professor Roland Deveaux from the French University in Paris. In addition to the original seven scrolls, Cave One produced jars, bowls, was chemical composition, and shape matched vessels discovered at the settlement in Qumran, pieces of cloth, and additional and additional fragments that matched portions of the original scrolls, thereby confirming that the original scrolls which came from cave one are a copy of the book of Isaiah, a second copy of the book of Isaiah, the community rule, the Habakkuk commentary, the war between the sons of light against sons of darkness, the thanksgiving scroll, and most important of all, the oldest copy of the book of Genesis. Cave number two was discovered in February 1952. It yielded 300 fragments from 33 manuscripts, including Jubilees, in the book of Sirach, in the original Hebrew language. Cave number three was discovered in March 14, 1952. The cave stored 14 manuscripts, including Jubilees, in the curious copper scroll. And about this scroll, I just want you to know what I'm talking about. This scroll is a map scroll which shows 67 hiding places in the Judean desert, mostly underground, throughout the province of Judea, now Israel. And according to this copper scroll, it helps astonishing amounts of gold, silver, copper, aromatics, and manuscripts. The problem is this scroll oxided. And so in England they tried to cut it in strips. You know the scrolls which are written in parchment, you can make them to absorb moisture and to open them up. Copper oxided you cannot. And therefore, we couldn't identify none of these 67 places. And so nothing of these treasuries were ever uncovered. Cave number four. Cave number four was, in, was discovered in August 1952. and was excavated from September the 22nd until September the 29th. One of the explorers, Gerald Lancaster, 
and Harding Roland de Vaux and the third Joseph Milik was actually the cave which brought the most, the biggest treasury of fragments from scrolls, altogether 15,000. Cave number five and six were discovered as well in autumn 1952. This cave produced, these caves produced 25 manuscripts, while cave number six contained fragments of about 31 manuscripts. Caves number seven, eight, and nine are unique in that they, they are the only caves that the access to them had to go through the settlement of Qumran. And therefore, it's interesting, because of that, most probably the caves carried only a few fragments in Greek, 20 of them, and uh, the most important of all is a letter from the book of Jeremiah, a six from the book of Baruch, and a copy of the scroll of Henoch. Cave number 10 produced only two ostracons. Ostraca is a piece of pottery with an inscription on it. But very, very important, we find in cave number 10 a marriage deed from a woman named Barata, and she probably had a few husbands because the same woman we find as well other marriage deeds from the same woman. In cave number 11, which was found only in 1956, we find 21 different texts, and we find one scroll which is the most important named the scroll of the temple, the longest scroll which original had 28 feet length. Also, cave number 11, we find fragments from the Bible about Melchizedek, king of Jerusalem. These are the 11 uh, caves, and now their meaning. I told you I'm going to shorten this time, and I will give you at the end some of the bibliography which I would like you to read. So number one, there is a lot of publication about the Dead Sea Scrolls. I want you to read one book, which you can either borrow or try to buy it. The Meaning of the Dead Sea Scrolls by Joanne Powell Davis. It's a Davis publication. 
And now we have a big problem. Israel made everything possible, in particular because after the unification of Jerusalem, we took possession of a lot of scrolls which were stored in the Rockefeller Museum in East Jerusalem. By the way, this is one of the museums which I highly recommend to see because this museum original was built in 1925 to store the relics and covered in course of 15 years later in Armageddon, in Megiddo. And there the Jordanians stored the scrolls which they uncovered while Qumran was in Jordanian jurisdiction. And therefore, there is a lot of authenticity and ownership, excuse me, controversy. The Jordanians, first of all, claim that the scrolls belong to them. Second, the explorers belong, uh, pretend that some of them belong to them. And third, the state of Israel is dead. And so what happened was Israel actually monopolized the scrolls. Until the late 80s, when the state of Israel was brought to court by an American magazine, which maybe some of you should subscribe, because they publish very interesting articles. B.A.R., Biblical Archaeological Review. And so I want you to know that I am one of the few Israelis who... Like a monkey on the tree, I'm very happy that we lost the case. And so we had to deliver the Dead Sea Scrolls to 70 universities in the world. And you will be surprised, the most advanced one in the study of the Dead Sea Scrolls, in the translation of the Dead Sea Scrolls, is the University of Melbourne, Australia. And still, unfortunately, until now, only 40% of the Dead Sea Scrolls were published. And therefore, these 40% enable us to say the following. The men of Qumran, and this I'm going to say very slow, because this is my motto. The men of Qumran fervently believed in a doctrine of last things. They have fled to the desert and were reading themselves for the imminent judgment when their enemies would be vanquished and they, God's elect, would be given final victory in accordance with the predictions of the prophets. It was in connection with these end of the time events that one in the most fascinating teachings of the secret emerged. The messianic hope loomed large in and through their truthful brotherhood. As a matter of fact, or of fact evidence show 
that they actually believe in the three messiahs. One a prophet, another a priest, and the third a king of prince. In the documents mentioned earlier, called the Manual of Discipline, or the Rule of the Community, it is laid down that the faithful should continue to live until the rule, until the coming of a prophet and the anointed one, the prophet Messiah. And if you read in column 9 and 11 in this scroll, these three figures would appear to usher in the age for which the community was making preparations. In another document found in cave number four and referred to as testimonia, an old number of Old Testament passages are brought together which form the basis for the messianic expectations. The first is to is the citation from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 18 and 19, where God said to Moses, I will raise them up a prophet from among the brethren, and like unto thee, next comes a quotation from Numbers 24, verses 15, 16, where Balaam foresees the rise of a princely conqueror, a scepter, shall arise out of Israel and shall smile for the corners of Moab. The third passage is in the blessing pronounced by Moses upon the tribe of Levi, the priestly, in Deuteronomy 33, verses 8 to 11. The way in which these three quotations are brought together suggests that the writer looked forward to the event that the great prophet, a great prince, and a great priest shall come to rule in Israel. There were three individuals in the Old Testament writings that were referred to as my anointed one, the prophet, the priest, and the king. Please look, refer to Exodus 29, 29, in the first book of Samuel, chapter 16, verses 13, in chapter 24, verse 6, in the first book of Kings, chapter 19, verse 16, and most important of all, Psalm 105, verse 15. Each of those was consecrated to his work by an anointed with oil. The Hebrew word anointed is Messiah. Messiah is from which we get the word Moshiach, Yeshua. The marvelous truth of the New Testament doctrine of Messiah is that each these three offices we find them fulfilled in these scrolls in the person in the work of Jesus of Nazareth the people were amazed in his feeding of the multitude and said this is a truth prophet that should come into work please read John chapter 6 
verse 14, and John chapter 7, verse 40, and finally Acts chapter 3, verse 22, and chapter 7, verse 37. Jesus also was a priest, not from the order of Levi, uh, Levi but from the order of Malchizedek. Uh, 